0: North Hill was a very close community. With us having a big family and other big families in the neighborhood, um, we all hung around. We all roamed the neighborhood, went ice skating, went to sled riding, played house, (laughs) used the lilac leaves as money to play grocery store. (laughs) It was a very close-knit neighborhood. Never regretted growing up there.
1: That's Nancy Flock. And her siblings. Nancy's maiden name is Leonard, and she's one of seven children raised by Gloria and Richard Leonard in the North Hill neighborhood of Akron. Back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when the Leonard siblings were growing up, North Hill was still Akron's little Italy. Their mother, Gloria, was born a Gasparo, one of the many proud descendants of Italian immigrants who made this part of the city their home. Jerry Leonard, the youngest sibling, said there wasn't a day that kids didn't fill the streets.
2: Our street, just within four houses, we had over almost 30 kids. And uh, including the ones across the street, we had over 30-some kids just in the middle of the street. We were like in the dead center of, of Thayer Street. So it was like every day there was people, the kids out playing in the street running in the telephone poles, getting knocked out, all, all that good stuff, all that fun stuff. So it was never a boring time. Either we was playing or we was fighting. So it was a fun time.
1: <laughs> the Leonards lived on Thayer Street. A few blocks away, on Collinwood Avenue, lived the Beard family. The families knew each other. They were both members of St. Martha's Church.
3: I think it was the best place you could grow up in that I could think of.
1: That's Bill Beard, one of six Beard siblings. The Beards were an Italian. They were of English and Irish descent. Nobody cared. There were plenty of those too.
3: My dad grew up there, so we're kind of, we're like second generation that grew up there, so. Yeah. Felt like we belonged there.
1: One day in 1979, a boy from the Beard family asked a girl from the Leonard family on a date and the lives of two strong, proud North Hill families would forever be entwined, not through the traditional ties of love and marriage, but through a shared tragedy that has defied answers confounded authorities and haunted two families and a stunned community for 40 years. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and ohio.com. This is Elusive Justice, the story of Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard. I'm Paula Schleiss, and helping me with this three-part series, which is covered in this podcast, as well as stories in print and online, are Beacon Journal reporter Stephanie Warsmith, photographer Mike Cardew, and my Ohio Mysteries co-host Steve Yoder. Now. Elusive Justice, Part 1, Missing. In the spring of 1979, when love often blossoms along with the daffodils and tulips, Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard became teen sweethearts. Ricky was graduating from North High School. Mary was finishing her junior year. But before Ricky collected his diploma, he asked Mary out. To outsiders, it might have seemed an unlikely pairing. They didn't run in the same circles, hang out in the same cliques. But Mary said yes, and the two, and the vernacular of the time, started going steady. Mary was 17, a bright, honor roll student with a captivating smile. Here's her older sister, Nancy, and her younger brother, Jerry.
0: She had a smile on her face Mm 24-7. Unless I was making her mad. I I really never heard her complain about people and Mm -hmm. life in general and... She, uh, she was a go-getter.
2: She got her job. She got very passionate about her schoolwork. Yeah, her sports. Mm-hmm. I remember watching her crying at the dining room table because she couldn't get her homework done right. Mm-hmm. That's how passionate she was.
1: Mary's birth evened up the gender balance in the family. Three boys, three girls, something her two sisters remembered celebrating Even though it meant for a time, the three girls had to share a bed. Kathy and Nancy doted on their baby sister, and Mary doted on them.
0: I remember after Kathy had gotten married, and it was just Mary and I sharing the bed now. (laughs) Every Saturday, I had long hair, and every Saturday morning... I would, she would have me turn over my back to her and she'd take the brush and she'd comb my hair. She'd spent an hour combing my hair. She never
4: did that for me. <laughs> there was enough room.
1: <laughs> and as her siblings started producing that next generation, Mary became everyone's favorite aunt and babysitter.
0: She loved her nieces and nephews that were mm-hmm. there at
5: the time. Everyone loved Mary.
1: That's her best friend, Carla Herbert. She was Carla Chitwood back then.
5: Even in school and teachers, teachers. I mean, she was an all-American.
1: Mary worked at Acme on Cuyahoga Street, a homegrown girl at the counter of the hometown grocery store. And she Didn't she, like, move up pretty quick there at the Acme because oh, yeah. of her yeah. personality? They were yeah. they in the process of promoting
5: her some more, yeah. making her... Mm-hmm. They she, work, she liked her job. She was working she, the service desk. Yeah, she was. She was, was you know. going to be into the service desk permanently. Yeah.
1: Ricky was a good-looking 19-year-old young man. At North High, he had completed a heating and air conditioning program while a student, and he landed a job as a refrigeration technician at the William Lay Company on Main Street in downtown Akron
4: was very kind-hearted, and he he loved the little kids in the neighborhood.
1: That's Rick's older sister, Luann Eddy.
4: And the little kids in the neighborhood would come to our house. I mean, four years old, they'd be knocking on our door. Could Rick come out? Rick was a teenager, you know. <laughs> and he babysat. He, he loved the winter. He loved the snow. The minute it started snowing, he was out there. He worked at the car wash down at the corner and um, he just he always worked he was always a worker and I think he tried to be kind of a hard ass but he wasn't you know he really had a soft heart
1: so define hard ass. <laughs> uh,
3: if, if, if you looked at him wrong, he'd he'd just like, what are you looking at? You know, he, he, he got beat up a lot because he was th- he's third in line, so you know, he, he had to dish it out you know, when he could. He had like a concave chest, and it kind of gave him an attitude, like you know, like kind of a kind of a chip on his shoulder. Oh, so he had a bone missing. Yeah, he had a big like chest? he had a big uh, concave in his chest. Looked like he caught a we we joke say he, like he caught a bowling ball when he was little.
1: So, maybe Ricky was a little bit of a bad boy He smoked some marijuana Wouldn't back down from a fight Wouldn't think twice about borrowing your clothes And daring you to say something about it A real tough exterior But enough of a charm That you wanted to dig deeper to find out what was inside You know,
5: you kind of always want to Have that one opportunity to be with a bad boy And just...
1: That's Mary's friend again, you
5: know, I Carla. Don't think it, Ricky ran with a whole different set of, of people that really weren't in our group, but we knew of them. Not to mention Ricky was older, so that made it, it even more of a bad voice scenario. But Ricky came from a very good family. I mean, his parents, they all lived in North Hill. He had quite a few siblings as well. They've all seemed to do fairly well, so it was kind of you know they were two nice nice families you know so they had strong strong roots.
1: And from Mary's sister Nancy,
5: I remember Mom saying even though she didn't care much for him,
0: she felt that in one aspect he was good for her because he seemed to care about her, right? Um, Listen to her like she could talk to him, but as far as like she said going. Beyond that, she felt that that was never going to be the situation.
1: For the time they were together, Mary and Ricky traveled around in his car. As with most teenage boys, Rick's car was his pride and joy. It was a used 1972 Chevy Impala, white with a dark blue roof that he bought from Burt Greenwald Chevrolet and polished
3: regularly. Kept it clean. She couldn't touch it. I don't think I ever drove it myself, but I mean, I might have rode it a couple of times.
1: Peggy, the baby of the Beard family, felt special that her big brother not only let her touch it, but he took me to Stonehenge and would let me drive that car. And none of my other brothers would ever let me drive or touch any of their things. And it made me feel special, you know, that he took time and said, do this, don't do that. He was adventurous, so he kind of thought of it as kind of like a fun thing to do, see his little sister try to drive. On August 24, 1979, Rick's car was ready for Friday date night. Showers earlier in the day had given way to a clear sky and the promise of a warm and sunny leisurely weekend. Rick finished his work shift, collected his $120 paycheck, and cashed it at North Akron Savings and Loan where his mom, Helen, worked. He paid his $105 insurance premium right away, so that didn't leave him with much, but it was enough for a movie with his girl. He went home and showered, took extra time with his hair, like he always did, then came down the steps in blue jeans, tan ankle boots, and a shirt he shouldn't have been wearing. I remember he was wearing Billy's Oakland Raiders
0: t-shirt. And I thought, oh, you're gonna
3: get so much trouble. Well, I didn't see him leave the house. Obviously, he wouldn't have been wearing my Raiders shirt, but yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> he snuck out.
1: At the Leonard house, Mary was also getting ready for her date. She'd been running around since that morning. At lunchtime, Carla had picked her up and they went together to Carmen Studios in downtown Akron to get the proofs of their senior pictures. They had lunch walked around Chapel Hill Mall a bit, then hurried home so Mary could start her 4 p.m. shift at Acme. Ricky was supposed to pick Mary up when her shift ended at 9 p.m., but he didn't. Mary got a lift from her manager instead. A few minutes after 9 o'clock, Mary was at home and on the phone to girlfriend Carla, very upset and saying she thought it might be time to break up with Ricky. Mary ended the phone call when she saw Ricky driving down the road to pick her up. If Mary was upset, it wasn't enough to cancel her evening plans. Still wearing her white Acme zip shirt beneath bib overalls, she and Ricky were off to the old Ascot Drive-In Theater, where the Amityville Horror was playing. It was a popular spot for area teens, especially on a summer Friday night. And lots of classmates were expected to be there. Carla originally planned to join them, but she wasn't feeling well and decided to stay home. Even at the age of 17, Mary might not have been able to go if her dad had really heard what she said as she and Ricky passed by him standing at the kitchen sink. He asked where they were headed, and Mary told him. But Mary's mom figured her husband probably wasn't paying attention or he would not have let his daughter go to a drive-in with a boy.
6: It was a make-out place. That wasn't
1: going to happen. Kids didn't go there to watch the movie? No. No.
6: There were movies?
5: (laughs) (laughs) Are you trying to tell us something? Yeah. What are you trying to tell us? I was never among that crowd.
4: Yeah. (laughs) Jeannie.
5: For, well, for we gap. could go to the drive-in as long as you, were going the okay. going you, the you weren't going with a boy. Okay. At least you said you weren't going with a boy. Yeah, when yeah. you got there, you switched cars. We switched cars. And, but there was a, quite a few of our friends and classmates at the drive-in. So.
1: And so Mary and Ricky went to the drive-in, but they didn't stay very long. Mary had an 11 p.m. curfew. And so before the movie ended, they left, trailed by another couple in a separate car. Between the theater and Mary's home, the two cars pulled into the parking lot of the Stonehenge Bowling Alley. After 10 minutes chatting with their friends in the parking lot, Ricky and Mary drove off, headed to the lettered home so Mary could make curfew. It was the last time anyone saw Mary or Ricky alive. The first person to realize something was wrong was Ricky's dad, William, an early riser who was usually having his first Pepsi by 5 or 6 a.m. Two of his six children were grown and moved out of the family's Collinwood Avenue house by 1979, but the four who remained were all teenagers, three of them with cars. The boy slept in the attic, so the easiest way to account for all of his young charges every morning was to have a look outside and count the cars. There was a car missing this morning, Ricky's Impala. It wasn't immediate cause for concern.
3: He, he, he had a tendency to fall asleep wherever he was at. It didn't matter. He could he could sleep on the floor. nobody was at, he, when he was tired, he was done. He, he he would be there. That was it. So when he, I, I didn't really raise any any concern when he didn't come home. I figured he's you know he's one of his friends' houses and crashed somewhere. So it wasn't a big deal.
1: That's Bill again. He'd spent the night away himself, and when he got home around 7 that morning, his dad sent him out to have a look around the neighborhood. William often did that himself. He knew all of his children's friends and where they lived. Everybody was right there in North Hill. And sometimes he'd make a quick pass of their houses just to reassure himself that his independent teenagers were accounted for. This time, he shooed Bill out of the house to go have a look and make sure Ricky was safely parked at one of his friends.
3: So I drove around North Hill looking for him, and I the car didn't turn up anywhere, so I came home. and The
1: Beard family was only vaguely beginning to realize their son wasn't late. He was actually missing. While Bill was driving around North Hill looking for Ricky's car, William Beard made a call to the Leonard house to see if Mary had gotten home. Jerry Leonard remembers the phone ringing in his home that day. The sun was up. He was a morning guy himself, so he was already awake, playing around with a CB radio in his bedroom.
2: Phone rings. Dad answers the phone. He hollers up to me. Is Mary in her room? No. She. I think she went to work early this morning because her bed was made and everything. And um, here was Ricky Beard's dad calling to see if Mary had made it home. And uh, that's when it all started.
1: Jerry was a one-man Amber Alert. He immediately started putting out Mary's description to people he could reach on his CB Mary's mother had fallen asleep waiting for her youngest daughter to come home that night
0: mom always stayed up she watched the Johnny Carson show every night and she always stayed up when, when especially if us girls were out she would not go to bed until when, until we walked in that front door and she had fallen asleep and um, they didn't wake up till that phone call when Mr. Beer called and wanted to know if Ricky was there.
1: But before either family had the chance to call police, police had called them. At 7:30 that morning, Ronald Collins, an officer with the Northampton Township Police Department, was driving along Portage Trail near the intersection with Northampton Road. In another decade, Northampton would become part of the city of Caga Falls, but in 1979. The township still existed with its own police department. Officer Colon spotted a car where there shouldn't have been a car, on farmland, shoved up against the entrance of an abandoned cinderblock garage with rotting wooden doors, located on a dirt lane that was no longer used. It looked as if someone had hoped to pull the car into the garage, then realized it wouldn't fit. He ran the license plate number, found Ricky's name, and called his home.
3: And then it was, you know, panic.
1: Ricky's wallet was tucked behind the visor of the car. A $5 bill was on the floor. A bag of Doritos and a blanket were in the back seat. There was something else in the car, something that shouldn't have been there. A bullet hole. The trajectory put a shooter in the back seat, gun hand low, aiming up. The bullet went through the passenger seat and exited the windshield. It didn't appear the bullet hit anything. There was no blood.
3: That that, that bullet hole was put in that car that Friday evening.
1: And so it was time to start looking for Rick and Mary beyond North Hill. Searchers headed three miles away to that farm, where Cuyahoga Falls begins its descent into scenic, rural, and heavily forested Merriman Valley.
3: In in talking to police, we decided to go to that farm lane where the car was found and do a search. So we got people, I don't know... Neighborhood people, volunteers came up there and we just kind of spread out and started walking through the farm fields up there where the car was to see if we could find anything. William
1: Beard joined the search for his son, but that made his other children nervous. He was still recovering from a quadruple bypass three months earlier. It was his third heart surgery at the age of 46.
3: And I was with my dad, we were walking, you know, he was just like fresh off of surgery. We were walking, and every time we found something, like maybe this could be a you know a body under here, we like turned it over. We would look at each other like, phew. And then after a while, I go, we can't, you know, I looked at him, I go, we can't do this. You know, we have to have other people do this because it was just too stressful every little for my dad, but it was too much. So we just took him back to the house and uh, let everybody else search. It was just a little too intense.
1: In hindsight, the Leonards thought Northampton police had made a huge mistake, allowing people near the car and traipsing through the fields. Here's Tom Leonard.
6: That's the problem. Eventually, everybody was out there. Yeah. And nobody should have been out there. They should have never moved the car. I understand the police even said from the time they first saw the car to the time they came back to the car, somebody had been at the car mm-hmm. because there was tall grass. The car was sitting halfway into a in the garage in the middle of this field, just enough of it was sticking out to be seen from the road. There was tall grass around, and this grass on one of the back doors, he had a four-door car. The the door had once been opened and then closed because the grass was then stuck inside the door. And they said something about that. When he looked in the car, he said about seeing something on the floorboard, what I don't know what, what they're referring to, but whatever that was was gone.
1: Back at the Beard home, Mom Helen was hoping it was all just a big misunderstanding.
3: Well, my mom was very uh, hopeful the whole time. She, you know, she always had some kind of a theory, you know. It was like he, he just, you know, went with somebody else. So, you know, what's it? I don't think she thought the gloom and doom of it at that point. It didn't really sink in, or she wouldn't let it sink in. Well, he always had some sort of adventure. Especially him and
4: Tim; they always had some sort of adventure there. You know, and I was thinking there's going to be a story about this. one. but obviously, it turned out not to be so.
1: The search of the farmland yielded nothing useful. There were several spent shells littering the ground, but the area was favored by hunters. Some of that was to be expected. The car was dusted for fingerprints. The seat with a bullet hole was removed and sent to the crime lab. The Beards were given their car back. The family drove it home, then hid it in a neighbor's garage to stop Gawkers from coming by to look at it.
4: I think by the time Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning rolled around, I think then it got real. Like, okay, they really are gone. They're really not coming back.
1: Mary Leonard's senior photo the one she'd picked up the day she disappeared, became her missing poster. Looking for any consolation she could find, Mary's mom, Gloria, was so thankful she at least had that last picture of her daughter.
0: That same day um, after she had picked up her pictures, she was going to take them with them. I don't right. know if, if to work or when she was with Ricky, and Mom asked her to keep them at the house in case any of us... Came, happened to stop by so we could see the pictures, and she is so glad she she stressed that because she says we probably would never have these pictures, these recent pictures Mm-mm. of her.
1: Police spent the next few days trying to put together a timeline of that Friday night and Saturday morning. Paul Herbrook, who owned the farm where Ricky's car was found, was the closest person living to the site. He told police he heard a car door slam around 2 a.m. that morning. But There was a bar at the corner of Portage Trail and Northampton Road, so he didn't think much of strange noises in the middle of the night. But it was the statement of a Leonard's neighbor that created the most stir, causing never-ending controversy because it foils so many theories. Frank Ronka told police Mary was home by 11 p.m. and Ricky was with her. He didn't see them, because they were sitting on the front steps of the Leonard home, just below the porch and out of his view. But he heard them talking. He heard Mary giggling. And he recognized Ricky's car parked on the street.
6: He would watch the news and then he would go out and have a smoke. Well, that night, there was a baseball game, I think, that ran over. So the news ran over, so he knows he was out there like a half an hour or so later than he normally would have been. And he says, even though he he, he didn't see them, my sister was laughing about something. He said, you you knew her laugh. And he says he never seen his car out front, and they were
5: apparently on the front
6: steps in front of the porch where they couldn't be seen from uh, his porch. He wouldn't be able to see them. But he he swears that they were there
5: at least for a short time that night. We spent a lot of days. I mean, because... The way the, the, the front yard was, you could sit down there, and Mary was always afraid if we sat on the porch it would interrupt her parents. So we always sat down closer to the street, so if we were laughing or talking loud or whatever, then Mom and Dad couldn't hear us.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: So, I don't know. Maybe they were there, maybe they weren't, I don't know.
1: It's hard for police, and hard for family, to piece together a scenario that would have Mary leaving again when she and Ricky had just made the effort to get her home by curfew.
5: Mary knows the rules. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we we you know, we weren't the children that bucked the system. Mary was home, Mary would have never left again. Because Mary knew if you're home, you need to stay home. You're not to go back out again because she would get in trouble. And it was getting late.
1: But Mary's brother, Tom, can conceive of someone following Ricky and Mary home, possibly to coerce Rick into going with them, for what reason, nobody can say. And maybe Mary was taken, either because she was a witness or to use against Rick in some fashion.
6: I think there's a possibility that whatever happened, that, that started right there.
1: And not only because of what the neighbor said. Turns out, one of the Leonard brothers had heard a strange noise that night, something he didn't think twice about until learning about the bullet hole found in Ricky's car.
6: Ron, who was in bed at the time, he said he was sleeping almost with his head on the on the windowsill because it was so hot, just trying to get a breeze through the window. And he said it didn't dawn on him until the next morning that what he'd heard Uh, What he thought was a fire, might have been a firecracker, could have been a gunshot.
1: Whatever happened, both the Beard and Leonard families argued with police that their children were absolutely not runaways. There was nothing in their manner, in their relationship, in the events of the day that would support two teens running away with no money, no clothes, and leaving behind their only transportation. A car, by the way, that had a bullet hole in it.
4: Neither one of them took money. Neither one of them had money. They maybe had money in a bank account, but nobody touched it. So where did they go?
1: Jerry Leonard, two years younger than Mary, said there was one subtle but telling moment that convinced him it was inconceivable that Mary left her family willingly that night. When Mary came home from work, she had brought with her that bag of Doritos to take to the movies. Jerry playfully made a grab for the chips, but she pulled them back.
2: And that was my proof that she had no plans of, that was, she had no idea that she, what was going to happen that night. She wasn't planning on running away or anything. She had given me the whole bag of Doritos if that was the case. Um, but that was the last I'd seen her.
1: After a couple of days, the police stopped talking about runaways and started talking more about the possibility of foul play. The bloodhounds came in. The bloodhound handler said it was his opinion that the couple was never at the location where the car was found, that the car was likely driven there by someone else, theoretically someone who thought they might be able to hide the car inside that garage. The Ohio National Guard sent a helicopter to join the search. And there were several search parties over the coming weeks, large and small, most of them formed by family and friends. I know Jerry
5: Leonard and I went on bikes the first few days, they went missing, Um, thinking of all the places that we knew Rick liked to hang out, you know, at the parks and stuff, the gorge,
1: Sand Run, those types of places. The families made missing posters.
3: And then we okay. put them up all over North Hill, so they were everywhere. Any store that would let us put them up or telephone poles, anybody, you know, between the Leonard's and us, friends.
1: Every family member drove around with one of the posters tacked to their car. At the Beard and Leonard homes, the tips poured in, some earnest, some ridiculous.
4: I worked at the time out at Fazio's on Arlington Street. And someone came in the store and said, oh yeah, I heard that someone saw your brother in the Philippines. Now this is a random person coming into the grocery store where I worked and coming up to me and saying this. And we're like, okay. So we tried to get as much information about that. Clearly they never were in the Philippines. Why someone said that? But that was just an example of the odd things that people said.
1: Soon after Mary and Ricky disappeared, the Leonard family decided to seek extra help. The family read about a private investigator named William Deer, who had worked on some nationally known missing persons cases. The Leonard's gave him a call. Deer left his home in Dallas, where he lived on a 28-acre estate, drove an Aston Martin, and had a private airfield. He flew to Akron in his personal jet wearing a three-piece suit. His normal fee was $1,000 a day in 1979 currency. He gave the Leonards an undisclosed discount. Still, he didn't come cheap. To pay his fee, the Leonard family and their friends held fundraisers.
0: We had a dance. Craft show. Actually, there was two different dances um, that were held to raise money. We had a... Strangers even coming to the door, handing mm-hmm. money. Uh, one kid in particular, the paper boy, had saved money to um, buy a, tri- a bicycle, a new bicycle, and he left a-, a jar of the money on the front porch with the note. Yeah. And mom went out to get the paper. She saw the the note there. That one, there, that kid there, just—he's the one that's always stuck in my mind. That he mm, I didn't he know did about that. that.
1: The Deer Agency set up shop at the Cuyahoga Falls Town & Country Motor Hotel. They told reporters their track record for finding missing persons was 100%. Within a couple of weeks of getting started, they said they found a witness who saw a man in the backseat of Rick's car as Ricky pulled onto the abandoned farm lane where his Chevy was found. They circulated a drawing of a bushy-haired man with a mustache. And in February of 1980, they made an announcement. Their investigators had a credible source that knew Ricky and Mary were alive and well and living out of state. He promised to share more details the following week. But the details never came. The bushy-haired man was never identified, found, or confirmed. And the deer investigators went back to Texas.
6: He came in he did. And with all this flash and, like I said, made promises. He said, I will know within, I think it was like two weeks of, he didn't want us to have put out that he was on the case right away. He said, I'll tell you when to release that information. He said, I'll know within two weeks what happened to him. One way or the other, I will know in two weeks. come up with nothing. He's he said, you've got a West file girl. this thick that's most of it he got from the Beacon Journal and the police department, and the rest is empty.
5: I interviewed with him, and he, actually in one of the rooms in the house, and it was just me and him, and he kept trying to get me to say that Mary was into something, or was she a part of drugs? Because he really thought that she ran away. And everything, you know, I kept telling him, no, this is not it. She wasn't going to be with Ricky for that much longer. She was planning on breaking up. Well, he didn't want to hear that. He He wanted to hear more of that they ran away.
1: In May of 1980, nine months after the couple vanished, police received a tip that led them to organize a search of the banks of the Little Cuyahoga River, specifically where the river passes under Memorial Parkway in Akron, then north to where the Little Cuyahoga joins the Cuyahoga River. The police weren't specific about the tip, only saying that their source didn't have first-hand knowledge but overheard something about Ricky and Mary having been killed, their bodies lying close to the river. On a Saturday morning, when the rain would not stop, more than 150 people showed up to tackle the unfriendly and now muddy landscape, where the river was bordered by tangled briars, poison ivy, tall weeds, decaying falling limbs, and sheer banks that turned up unexpectedly along the winding waterway. National Guardsmen, Marine Reservists, and Akron police officers led the civilians. They held their breath collectively each time a volunteer found a bone, which a team was on hand to quickly identify as animal. And there was a tense moment when someone found a woman's shoe that proved not to be Mary's. Even William Deere flew up with four of his private investigators to help. No charge. He said he felt sorry for the families and wanted to make this one last effort. By now, he had changed his mind, telling media he was confident the teens were not runaways, that they were likely dead. Several of Rick and Mary's family members were among the searchers, including Tim Beard.
2: They brought uh, army trucks to haul the people around. There's a lot of people. Red Cross was down there feeding people. We always had hope. You know, we wouldn't have been doing this. We didn't have hope, you know, eventually. We are gonna find them.
1: Eight hours times 150 people. And it was still like searching for a needle in a haystack. The area they covered didn't even reach to the adjacent Kaga Valley National Park. Where a killer would have 32,000 acres of woods at his disposal. But were Mary and Rick even dead? The families lived a roller coaster of emotions. Just three months after the big Merriman Valley search, on the first anniversary of their disappearance, Akron Police Lieutenant Frank Stemple told the media I think they're alive. After all this time, if there were bodies out there, something would have turned up. He said the department had received tips putting the teen sweethearts in Pennsylvania, Texas, Indiana, New York, Arizona, and Florida. The families didn't know what to think, but they didn't want to give up hope.
5: I don't think any of us thought that she wasn't alive until we were actually given proof that she wasn't.
1: Well, except for Mary's brother, Tom. He said he was probably the only person in the family who was certain that Mary was no longer alive.
6: It just never hit me that she ran away. You know, she didn't come home. It's because she couldn't come home.
1: As days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years, the hardest part for the Beard and Leonard siblings was watching their parents' pain, the unnatural agony that comes from not knowing where your child is or what has happened to them. After Ricky and Mary had been missing for a couple of years, Luann remembers her mother receiving a tip that Rick could be found in the basement of a house on Dan Street. And my
4: mom started banging on this house, on these windows of this house, just screaming, Rick, with this horrible voice. Nothing, I don't know if anyone lived in that. No one came out and said anything to us. But just little things like that. We went through this for six years. We went through little things like that.
1: Meanwhile, William Bear took several creative steps to get more eyes on his son's case.
4: My dad decided that to get more people looking for Rick, he would report him to the IRS for not filing his taxes. And he also reported him to what's called selective service. Because at that time, when a boy turned 19, they had to register for the draft and he had not, my dad knew that Rick had not registered for the draft, so he reported him to the draft board just thinking that maybe they'll look for him, maybe somebody else will look for him. He also wrote a letter to Frank Reynolds who was an ABC newscaster back at that time. He was on the national news. He was at, Frank Reynolds was actually a distant relative of ours and our parents had met him at one point, so my dad wrote him a letter and asked if he would talk about it on the national news. And we have the letter here that Frank wrote back and said, no, I'm sorry, you know, we don't do that. We can't do that, you know, because that everybody would have be asking us to do that. Which, of course, times have changed, and they do do that now. Yeah.
1: And to aid police in their investigation, he documented everything.
4: My dad actually chronicled everything that happened day by day sometimes hour by hour. Like he would have, anytime the phone rang, he wrote down such and such a time, this call came in and this person hung up. Or there was one incidence where someone called and asked for Rick, which that's just mean. And people did mean things like that too. But my dad wrote, you know, on such and such a day, we went here, we looked here, we wrote this letter, we did this, and one of the days It was Mary's birthday, and his only note says Mary turned 18 today. And it's kind of heartbreaking to see that.
1: But William wouldn't live to learn what had happened to his son. In 1981, two years after Ricky vanished, William died.
4: Yes, he was sick, but I really think that this really did come in.
1: Meanwhile, the Leonard family was chasing down the tips they were getting. They took everything seriously, even things that seemed like obvious hoaxes.
6: Something's gonna come from someplace. Happen to look down the street, and the postman's coming down the street. As for all we know, the postman's got a letter. You know, and he hands us a letter. Ron and I were at the at the steps
0: there when right. he came down, and he handed and it was from Mansfield Formatory. And this guy is saying, "Or well, my friends have your daughter right. um, in exchange for her." We want to meet up at North High School uh, with the police officer that had arrested him, put him in jail. So right away we called the police and they came down got the letter and they said, this is a hoax, but my dad insisted on going through with it. He wanted to be there, so if it was come to fruition that he would be there to take his daughter home. Put a bulletproof vest on him and they went up there and, you know, of course nothing ever came out of it.
1: Other phone calls seemed particularly cruel.
0: We had another phone call saying to come down to the gorge park in the parking lot. I don't know how many of us went down waiting for them, and these two cars of kids come by laughing at us. There they are, there they are.
1: In those early years, the Beard family was also frustrated by the police investigation. It appeared to them that the police were focusing too much on the fact that the stubs of a couple of marijuana cigarettes were found in the ashtray of Ricky's car,
3: but if you stop ten teenagers' cars, eight out of ten of that back in the '70s, you're going to find roaches in their ashtrays. So they kind of they kind of played up the drug angle a little too much, I felt, because it wasn't you know hasn't proven to come out to be anything to do with that. So they seem to be they seem to bring that up a lot, like he was a you know a bad kid or something. But it just sort of It sort of rubbed me the wrong way. That was
1: Bill. Another brother, Mike, agreed with him. Mike is a year older than Ricky.
6: Anytime I talked to him, it sounded like Rick was not the victim. He was the culprit in all of it. And Mary was going to be the only victim. Everything was making Rick out to be the villain, especially right from the beginning. What did Rick do? Why did Rick do it? Just because he grew up on North Hill and he was... He'd had other issues earlier on in his life. He'd had some run-ins and that, and all of us had.
1: And younger brother Tim, Rick's closest confidant, said for years police saw him as a suspect.
2: I had to get an attorney to get him off me. I'd take a polygraph and all that at the police station. Every job I've been to, they'd come and harass me.
1: I mean, they're focusing on you, but when you're home alone, are you, what are you thinking happened? I
2: had no idea. Not a clue.
1: Nobody had a clue. Not really. Not for six years. The tips and the leads slowed down. The phones stopped ringing. And then, one pleasant, sunny day in May of 1985, the phones of the Leonard and Beard families... Started ringing once more. On part two of Elusive Justice, the story of Ricky Beard and Mary Leonard.
0: As soon as I walked in the door, the phone rings, and it was my mother in law calling saying, Your mom's been trying to get a hold of you. They think they found Mary and Ricky.
1: This podcast was done in conjunction with the Akron Beacon Journal and Ohio.com. Find photographs, maps, videos, timelines, newspaper clippings, and more in the Beacon Journal Print Edition, online at Ohio.com, as well as on our website, OhioMysteries.com. Additional editing for the series by Cheryl Powell. Audio mixed by Steve Yoder. We'd also like to extend our gratitude to News Channel 5 in Cleveland for archived audio content and to the many talented musical artists who offer their work through a Creative Commons license. Please see our episode notes for links to our main theme music, Wasteland by Ross Bugden, and all the music used in this series. Find more Ohio Mysteries episodes on our website or through your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, And Patreon.
4: Hey Hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey.